We are in the Gospel of Luke this semester, and we are continuing the Gospel of Luke. We're going from the birth of Jesus all the way to the resurrection of Jesus. We're in the seventh week of being in the study, and we're still in chapter 7. Um, so at some point in a couple weeks, we're really going to have to skip a lot of stuff um, and hopefully you'll see the flow of it as we get there. But tonight we're in chapter 7. We're starting in verse 18. And we got a big old hunk of reading there. So I'm just going to go ahead and start. Um, John, Luke, John, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Then did you go out, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury and in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? 
I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May he add his blessing to the reading of it. Let's pray before we look into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another week. We thank you for this half of the semester. We thank you for another um, RUF. We just thank you for another time to open your word, to be with your people, and to hear from you. We pray that you would give us your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will, uh, I will never forget the Christmas that I began to realize that Santa Claus was not real. Sorry if I just like ruined your life with that. But I won't forget. Um, I won't forget. It started to unravel one Christmas very vividly. I did the ultimate thing. I did the ultimate Christmas thing, uh, a thing to stay on the good list um, forever, okay? I asked Santa Claus for different and specific gifts for each of my family members, even my brother, and that's saying a lot at the time, maybe. Um, And the first thing I remember looking for that Christmas morning were the gifts that I had asked for for my family members. And they were the first things that I noticed were not there. And so my belief in Santa Claus that morning began to unravel. What happened? What happened? Well, it wasn't merely that Santa Claus had not followed through. What it actually was is that he, uh, that his not following through ran completely contrary to my expectations of him. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you think about it, if it were a movie, it could be a Hallmark movie or something. Um, what I had done should have like gotten my family a cruise or a trip to Disney World, right? Um, like, oh, the little kid asked for gifts for everybody else and not himself. Let's give him a cruise. That makes sense. I had, you know, I had sought gifts for others and not myself and of my own volition and not anyone's prodding. And I had spent my whole life believing that the very essence of Christmas, even Santa Claus himself, was to give, not to receive. I followed through with that. And because of that, I viewed Christmas, I viewed Santa in particular through a lens of certain expectations, right? What was to that point, what I'd been told, even what I'd experienced year after year, led to a series of assumptions, big assumptions, that governed what I expected the results should have been that morning. And they totally were unexpected. They went against my expectations, actually. As soon as those expectations were disappointed, there was no going back for me. And then a few months later, my brother ruined it for me and told me my parents stayed up all night making my toys. Anyway, that's beside the point. We do the exact same thing with Jesus. We do. Uh, I have a quote there from uh, Les Newsom. 
one of the chief effects of sin in our lives is the persistence of viewing the world through our experiences, our histories, and our examples. And when we do that, we let our expectations define the world around us. Instead of the world being the world around us, we start defining it and we start seeing it only through our expectations of it. And what we see in this passage tonight, it's a big passage, I know, but I wanted to look at all of it. What we see in all of it is we see three people trying to bring the real Jesus into focus. He's been kind of on the scene for a little while. He's been doing a lot of things. He's gained all this popularity. Now we get this intimate story of three different people trying to bring this real Jesus into focus. And essentially we get three portraits in each portrait is very deep and complex and we could spend three weeks on them, but I'm going to try to get done in 20 minutes, 25-ish minutes, maybe. We'll see. I'm trying. Three portraits, doubt, skepticism, and faith. Follow me here. The first one is doubt, and we see this in John the Baptist. And I want you to get the full force of Luke, including the story, okay? We haven't looked at John the Baptist much in depth, but if you're at all familiar with the Gospel of Luke, if you look back at the first three chapters of this Gospel, you will see that John the Baptist is just as much a part of the birth narrative of Jesus for Luke as Jesus is himself. If you look back at it, you'll see the first birth that we're told of in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist, not Jesus. Then we get Jesus' foretelling of Jesus' birth. The first birth we get in Luke is John the Baptist, and then Jesus. The first public ministry we get in Luke is John's public ministry, and then Jesus. For Luke, John the Baptist plays an integral role in you being more sure of who Jesus is. Get that. Luke tells you all about John the Baptist in the first three chapters because he thinks, he knows, that if you fully understand what he's saying, you will be more sure of who Jesus is. Are you starting to feel the force of this now? And then we come to this chapter, Jesus is preaching, healing, being generally awesome. And we're told that John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, wait a minute. Are you really the one or what? Are you feeling the weight of this? Okay. John the Baptist, no one believed in Jesus like John the Baptist. No one was more sure about Jesus than John the Baptist. No one spoke more highly of Jesus and more clearly about Jesus than John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, heard God the Father speak, saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. In John, uh, the Gospel of John 1, chapter, uh, verse 29, he tells two of his disciples when he sees Jesus walk by, Behold the Lamb of God who takes the, away the sins of the world. And those two disciples were told, Leave John and go follow Jesus. Y'all, John the Baptist was the spiritual juggernaut. Without John the Baptist, you do not get Jesus. That is the picture of the Old Testament and everything that has happened up until this point. And Luke now wants to tell you that now that John is in jail and waiting for his death, he now stops and thinks, wait a minute, we might have screwed up. Is Jesus really the one? And how does John respond? I mean, how does Jesus respond? He does the exact same thing he's been doing. The disciples come, they ask him, are you really the one? He says, hold on one one second, let me go over here. He heals the sick. He casts out evil spirits. He restores sight. The lame walk. The deaf hear. The dead live. And look at verse 22 there. 
Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen. Okay? Jesus was telling John this. This is what Jesus was telling him. Uh, John, I am the one, but I did not come into the world to fit your expectations. John, I am the one, but I did not come into the world to fall in line with your expectations. You see, John preached repentance, uh, and he preached the fiery consequences of not repenting. And John expected Jesus to be and do exactly the same. And here we find Jesus actually pushing back against that. Look at verses 31 through 32. Um, Jesus actually uses John's question and how he answers it to make a bigger point to everybody around there. He quotes this popular saying among children. Basically, children would be out in the streets playing and they're, you know, you know, children, some children always want to be pouty and they don't want to join in the happy game. So what the children would then do would be play a sad game. And the pouty child would be like, I don't want to play that either. And it's just a back and forth. What Jesus is telling them is saying, y'all are just like children in that you cannot get outside your own self-absorbed view of the world. That's what Jesus is telling what he's telling us. He's being very frank. John was the serious, fiery preacher. They rejected him. Jesus was so loose and free that people accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And he says, and you didn't like me either. So this is what he's saying. This is what Jesus is saying to everybody at the scene at this point. As long as I am a projection of your expectations, you have not truly met me. As long as I am a projection of your expectations, you have not truly met me. In other words, if Jesus has never offended you, or if Jesus has never unsettled you, there's a big chance that you don't know this Jesus, or that you don't know everything about him. And I love uh, listening to my boys play games. Uh, my oldest is kind of old enough to kind of get it and play by the rules. My youngest is still kind of dense and just whatever goes. But they'll, they'll try to play games and they'll try to go by the rules. And it's amazing. You know, they play sorry. I'm not too familiar with it, but there's four different colors. And the object is make your color all the way around the board and into the middle. Um, and so you'll hear them playing and doing the dice and it's going around. And as they get towards the end of the game, something, something interesting happens. The rules start changing, right? Well, no, now I get to go twice in a row. Or no, four actually means ten now. No, you lost a turn because you hit it wrong, right? And what's happening, if, you, if you're paying attention, what's happening is, is they're not playing sorry anymore. They're playing a game after their own image. At some point, sorry is going to have to shape the game they play. At some point, they are going to have to fall in line with what the rules of the game actually are. At some point, for you and me, either Jesus begins to shape your expectations, or maybe what you actually have is a Jesus that you've made fit into yours. At some point, either Jesus begins to shape your expectations, or you have to realize that the Jesus you have is the one that you've made fit your expectations. Y'all, there's there's no better way to irritate me. (laughs) There's no more common phrase and no more irritating phrase to me than to hear someone say, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Or my Jesus this. Or my God this. And I usually understand the sentiment there. But that is, that is a real spiritual cancer. And this is why. Because all your Jesus is, is just that. Your Jesus. That's it. 
I love, I have that quote from David Robertson there. If you take the Christ out of Christian, all you have is Ian and Ian won't save you. Right? Think about this for a second. What is it about you or in your life that makes you okay? What is it that makes you feel okay? Is it that you don't do what most people do when they go off to college? Is that what makes you okay? Is that what makes you think you're succeeding at the college thing? That you're not getting carried away with yourself? Because if so, if, if Jesus eating and fellowshipping with outcasts doesn't bother you, people, by the way, that you would not be caught dead see, be, being seen with, that's the kind of people Jesus hung out with. If that doesn't bother you, then there's chances are that you've missed this Jesus. Because when you've met this Jesus, you actually start gravitating to those people that you used to refer to as those people. What is it that makes you okay? Are you okay because certain people or a certain amount of people like you? Is that what makes you okay? Because if it is, if Jesus being utterly rejected, unliked, and hated at the end of his life, if that does not bother you a little bit, chances are you've missed it. Because when you've met him, you actually realize that you really actually can disappoint people. Oh gosh, I could spend an hour on that one for myself. I could spend more than that. You notice what Jesus didn't do, right? Jesus did not condemn John's doubts. Doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He actually finds them perfectly understandable and he sends John words of comfort. Are you bold enough to actually let Jesus deal with your doubt? Are you bold enough to let Jesus deal with your doubt? Are you scared of what he's going to say back? If you read through the Gospels, the disciples doubted all over the place. They're doubting all over themselves, right? But what gets them in trouble is not necessarily the doubting. It's when they try to cover it up for themselves or compensate for it themselves. That's when they mess it up. The real Jesus, this Jesus, must bump up against and even offend your expectations. Okay? If he never has, then maybe the Jesus you have is the, and, or maybe the Jesus you rejected is your Jesus and not this Jesus. The real Jesus shapes your expectations and not the other way around. Okay? What's the second one here? second one here is skepticism. Skepticism, and I fully understand, because um, I, I had a moment of thought here earlier in the week, that skepticism and doubt can actually be used interchangeably in a sentence. But listen to how I'm defining this, okay? How I'm defining this is this. Doubt, as we see it in John the Baptist, is questioning something you already held true, okay? And then skepticism is questioning something in order to verify its truth. Does that make sense? Okay? That's how I'm using doubt and skepticism. In Simon, we see the skeptic, the one who needs a little bit more to verify its truth. He doesn't, he's not all the way there yet. This whole scene in Simon's house, Simon the Pharisee, uh, gives us two completely opposite reactions to Jesus. And I want to look at Simon first. All right, look, look at, just look at the story as it, as it comes to us there, starting in verse 40. Oh, no, that's chapter 8. Um, starting in verse 36. Um, he's a Pharisee. Now listen. 
for most of us that grew up in the church, whenever we hear Pharisee, we think of goon with a club. Y'all have got to get this in your minds. The Pharisees were the most upstanding men in all of Israel. Get that in your head. The Pharisees were the most upstanding men in Israel. They are the ones that would have been at the top of the Republican presidential uh, ticket. There, I said it. That's them. They are men who we would want running our businesses, running our governments, running our churches. Those kind of men. Okay? Everybody looked up to the Pharisees. And, in parentheses, they also looked down on everybody. But everybody looked up to them. Okay? And we have to give Simon some credit here. Look at it. Okay? He's a skeptic, but... And we usually use that word negatively, but he's actually pursuing his skepticism. Okay? I have some thoughts about Jesus. I want to make sure. So what am I going to do? I'm going to bring him into my house. Having, hosting someone for a meal was a big deal, okay? He's open to Jesus. He's hosting him. Um, it would have been a semi-public thing. Uh, the do- all the doors and windows of the house would have been open, which explains why this woman just finds her way into the middle of the house, right? But we realize by the end of the story is that for all the respect and openness that Simon had to learning more about Jesus, in the end, he had completely missed it. He had completely missed Jesus. By the end, Jesus exposes him as a terrible host. Okay? Why is he a terrible host? In that culture, when you hosted anyone, let alone a very famous teacher, which Simon recognizes Jesus is, when you hosted someone, the first thing that you would do when they came into your house over the threshold would be to kiss them on the cheek and maybe even give them a hug. Okay? We do this, don't we, guys? Come on. Let's be real. We do it when girls aren't around. Um, Anyway, the next thing you would do is you would have a water, a bowl of water and a towel at the ready to completely wash their feet and their hands. They walked everywhere, y'all. Their hands and their feet were nasty. Okay? I hate feet as they are clean. Think about what they look like here. Okay? Then you would seat him. But everything that happens as Jesus comes uh, into this house is nothing. Jesus just goes straight to the table because he's not welcomed when he gets there. And that would have been blatantly obvious to anyone that was standing there. And this is what Jesus tells him flatly about all of it at the end. You didn't do these things. Why? Not because you're skeptical. He doesn't say you didn't do this because you're a skeptic. He said you didn't do it because you don't love me. That's what Jesus says. You did not do these things to me because you do not love me. Simon was completely lost and missed the real Jesus, even though he respected him, even thought Jesus was a man of God. But at the end of the day, Jesus did not, just did not do that much for him. Didn't move him, didn't excite him, didn't attract him. Just kind of so-so. I love the Big Bang Theory. I'm only a recent watcher of the show. If you have never watched it, you are missing out. It's the funniest show ever. Uh, The classic case of contrast in the Big Bang Theory is Leonard and Sheldon and how they date their girlfriends. Okay? Um, Both have girlfriends, but there's a huge difference. You see, Leonard Leonard dates uh, the knockout blonde who wants to be an actress, and he loves her. He will do anything for her. He will stop watching Star Trek as much as he loves it if she doesn't want him to, right? He would do anything for her. She is better than anything he's ever had, and it shows in all that and how he relates to her. But Sheldon, however, has Amy. And Amy's kind of awkward, and Sheldon's really awkward. 
And while Amy is kind of like Leonard is with Penny, Sheldon views the relationship purely as a social convention. And he actually has his girlfriend sign a contract as to when they'll hang out and how many times she can text him and when they go on dates. It's very, it's very um, routine and, and, and dry, right? And there's plenty that he'd rather do or have than have a girlfriend. Um, nothing personal against her. It's just the way it is. Sheldon isn't moved by her. She's just a girlfriend. Simon, y'all, when we look at Simon, we, we, we come to these Bible stories and we skip right over them and we think, okay, I understand who Simon is. Y'all got to stop and think, Simon is such a reflection of us. He is. You know, you really do like Jesus. You actually even believe that he lived, died, and was raised for you. But at the end of the day, there's really actually little about Jesus himself that does anything for you. If you're honest... Here's the thing, y'all. What you find beautiful is clear to everyone around you. What you find is beautiful is clear to everyone around you. You would have to be the densest person ever to not know that I am absolutely infatuated with the sport of football, right? If you're around me for more than two minutes, if you haven't picked that up, you're not paying attention, Okay? What, you, what we find beautiful is clear to everyone around us. You see, so many of you are so hung up about the fact that Jesus doesn't move you. But here's the thing. Have you thought about what does? Have you thought about what does? Maybe it's really the only thing that moves you is the next fun weekend. When you get to let go. And maybe forget yourself. And forget the pain. Maybe it's the next time you go home because you're miserable here. Maybe it's when he or she finally pays attention because of how you look or because of how you talk. What really moves you, what you really find beautiful, in other words, is something other than Jesus. It's something besides Jesus because if you're honest, you just find those things more exciting. And you're fine with that. Once again, look at Jesus. He doesn't condemn Simon for his skepticism. He meets him where he is and he confronts him with this fact that Simon's skepticism isn't rooted in a lack of evidence. It's rooted in a lack of love. That's it. Simon didn't love Jesus and Simon didn't want to because Simon didn't think that he needed to. Which leads us to the final point here. Faith. Faith. We see faith in this woman, right? We don't know much about her, um, about this woman, except one thing. The passage says three times she was a sinner. Luke goes a step further in verse 37 by calling her a woman of the city. She was a prostitute. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. That's how clear it is. Everything she does here is outrageous. Look at it. She busts up in a house of a well-to-do person and a dinner party, most likely of all men. Okay? Um, rules back then, you, in that culture, you didn't even speak to your wife in public. And here this woman is just busting up in a group of men. She's a blustering mess. Girls, you know how embarrassed, guys do it too, how embarrassed you get, right, when you're crying and you can't stop it. She's a blustering mess, yet she marches straight in. She's crying and she can't contain herself. She's on the floor in a heap at a guy's feet. It's weird. And she lets down her hair. 
Letting down the hair was a very sexually provocative thing. That's why people are very off-put by her here. Um, it was actually one thing that you would look forward to on your wedding night. Your wife dropping her hair for the first time. That's how important that was. More than that, she takes this alabaster flask, very expensive, and a flask of it, not just a vial. You, women would wear vials of this around because they didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have hot showers uh, on the ready, right? So people kind of had a stank about them. So you'd wear a vial of something smelling good, so you kind of cover that up a little bit. She has the whole thing. And if you're a prostitute, that's your livelihood. She takes the whole thing and breaks the whole thing on Jesus' feet. She's pouring out her life at Jesus' feet. Her security, her beauty was in that bottle. And she breaks it and pours it on Jesus' feet. They're going to get dirty as soon as he leaves the house. There's something about Jesus that so captured this woman that she does not care what anyone thinks anymore. Think about that. Everyone in the room knew who she was. There were most likely clients in the room. Think about that. And she only cares about Jesus and she wants Jesus to know that. She wants the whole world to know that. What would produce such an outrageous act from this woman? An act where Jesus looks down on her and tells the whole house her faith has saved her. Jesus could have dismissed her from the house with a glance to the host. Not only does he not do that, he addresses her in public. And says that her faith has saved her. Get this, y'all. Jesus is saying, this woman gets it. Think about the whole passage. John the Baptist. Baptists are a big thing in the southeast, right? This is the Baptist. John the Baptist. Simon, a Pharisee, one of the most righteous men in Israel. Neither of them get it. Neither of them get it. But the whore does. She gets it completely. And she gives her whole life in a moment to it. In verse 41, look at verse 41. The parable explains it. Just a little bitty parable that Jesus told. Two men owe the same man, 500, one 500, one 50. The man forgives both of them. Which one will love him more? Simon says, the one who owed 500. Jesus says, Simon, you've answered rightly. You get it, don't you? Jesus is saying to Simon, you get it, don't you, Simon? You didn't do these things for me because you don't love me. She is doing these things and she is risking all the shame because she loves me. And she knows that there's nothing else in this world worth living for. Because she's been forgiven a lot. You see the principle Jesus establishes there, right? He who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus is saying, your love of me is directly proportional to your understanding of how much you need to be forgiven. Your love of me is directly proportional to your understanding of how much you need to be forgiven. This is why Jesus is so unexpected. Those who had it all together completely missed Jesus. And the bottom dwellers, they wouldn't stop flocking to him. They're coming out of the woodwork to be near him. 
Why was this woman's faith saving? That's the question. Why was the woman's faith saving? Because she dared open shame? No, she dared open shame because her faith was saving. Why was her faith saving? It was not because she had amazing faith. It's because her faith was in a savior. Her faith was saving because it was in someone that could save her. That's it. She knew that she had nothing to bring. She knew that she had nothing to stand on. She knew that her desirability and her beauty could not make her okay. But she knew Jesus could. And that's all that mattered. I don't know if y'all, have y'all seen this video of the little girl who finds out she's going to Disney World? This is the most amazing video ever. I don't try not to cry as I'm recounting it. This girl, she's sitting on a couch and apparently it's her birthday's coming up. And so her mother says, hey, do you want an early birthday present? And she's like, yeah. And so she gives her this big princess backpack and says, open it. So she opens it. She starts pulling out just Disney thing after Mickey, Minnie, all of them. She just, thing after another. And she's just so happy, like, mom, thank you so much. She's like, sweetest little girl, right? And the mom looks at her and says, where do you think we should take all this stuff? And she goes, oh, I guess to my room. And she said, no, why don't we take it to Disneyland? And the girl just immediately goes, and she's like, are you serious? Are you serious? And she's like, yes, we're going to Disneyland today. Now look, the next moment, the look on this girl's face is abject horror. If you froze the video, if you... If you froze the video at that moment, you would think it was a video of a girl watching a dog get run over by a car. I'm not even kidding. Okay? What this girl realizes, and when she finally processes, what comes out of her is a burst of inexpressible joy, and she can't stop it. She can't control how it comes out. She's happy. This woman, think about the woman, y'all. She had not done anything different. She had heard about a guy named Jesus. She probably even heard the man talk at some point. She heard about this grace that was too good to be true. She realized that she needed it and she believed. And you know what it did? It changed her. It changed her. In an instant. You give your life to that which captivates you. You do. If you struggle with passion for Jesus or being on fire, if you struggle with how you feel about Jesus or you feel guilty about it, what this is telling you is that, and what the Disney girl would tell you, is that if you struggle with that, then Jesus must not be good news to you. That's it. Look at back at verse 22. Look back at verse 22. I find this utterly amazing. What does Jesus tell John's disciples to go tell them that they saw and heard? Out of all the list of things, he caps the list with the poor have good news preached to them. Your schedule, your grades, your resume, your boyfriend, your girlfriend... You might think that those are good news, but they cannot save you. But Jesus did. And what the gospel will tell us over and over and over and over again is that really is good news. 
This is the question I'll leave with you tonight. Jesus really does do things that are unexpected, does he not? He actually can handle your doubt. He's even ready for it. Take it to him. He really can handle your skepticism. In fact, he's ready to deal with it. Take it to him. He really can handle your shame weekend after weekend, party after party. Take it to him. He really can handle your guilt, your neediness, your brokenness, your messiness. All of these things that you keep foisting on other things and other people. He actually can and will handle it. And he won't turn you away. This is what I want you to hear. He really can handle you. And the real you. Not the you that keeps failing your parents or your friends or your own expectations. He can handle the real you. As you are. I leave you with the favorite verse of my favorite hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or else I die. What if that were true? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do long for something that's real and something that's true and something that can handle my mess. You've told us that you will. But more than that, you told us that you have in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Would we see him? In him alone we pray. In his name, amen.